Friends, our summer series, it's a brief series of messages this summer, as you saw on the front of the bulletin, if you're a guest here with us today, it's based on the scriptural truths that are reflected to us from some of the familiar hymns of the faith. Even this morning, we sang a number of songs because Dorothy's team was up, and just because of instrumentation, you know, the organ, a classic instrument of the church going all the way back to the time of Bach and others, it lends itself to certain songs and certain types of music. You take many of the lyrics of older songs and you give them modern instrumentation. I love modern arrangements of the, uh, of the words of old hymns, and it brings them new, fresh life. So the music, we've talked in the past few weeks how the music and the lyrics, they go hand in hand. Many of the famous hymn writers that we have seen throughout the course of this uh, series that I've called Then Sings My Soul, which is a familiar line from an old hymn, uh, most of the hymn writers we know only wrote the words. And a number of different uh, tunes can be put to those words uh, as long as they have the same meter and so forth. But last week, in the last couple of weeks, we saw how the uh, music was written specifically for certain songs, like Blessed Assurance. Uh, Fanny Crosby went to her friend who wrote music, and her friend played a song for her. And she says, how does that song speak to you? Well, how does it make you feel? Because the music is the feeling of the song. Fanny Crosby, who was an ace with the words, she said, Right at that moment, she wrote the word. She says, that song gives me assurance. They called the tune Assurance, and she wrote the words to Blessed Assurance to go along with the song. Well, in today's hymn, we're going to see it's similar, but almost the other way around. Somebody had the words God had laid on their hearts, and they went to somebody and say, how do you think about these words? What music springs to your mind? It's very interesting how these things come together why would we look at songs and hymns and gospel songs because scripture tells us to scripture says that music should be in your heart as a child of god as you see our theme verse for the series before you found in the book of ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 19 when we're told not to be riotous and drunken on wine and so forth but instead to be filled with the holy spirit One of the ways that we express a spirit-filled heart is to speak one another, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told a couple things there. One is that music, singing together as we do this morning as part of our worship, should be part of our communication to one another as believers. We sing and we make music to one another. And uh, it's so wonderful when a group sings together. It just lifts you up. You're part of a larger whole. But you catch there that the music in your heart, that's reserved for the Lord. He is your audience. You're singing praise songs to Him. So I hope that you have a repertoire and, uh, and you hum it or sing it and you think about it. It's a form of prayer that you do. You make music in your heart to the Lord. You imagine He's told us that in the Word because it is, I believe, a blessing to God Himself. Well, this morning's hymn, is, uh, it goes along with communion. We began this series a month ago with the famous Isaac Watts hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. 
What a wonderful, great hymn. And it was an old one. It's the oldest hymn we look back, way back in the early 1700s. And we weren't maybe as as late as some of the songs we sang today. Many things we think of as great hymns of the faith were actually fairly recent songs by uh, the Gaithers and so forth. We sang some of that music today. But these hymns, this is one of the latest ones that we're going to look at, and it's 1893. They've been around a while. But that speaks to me. Every generation should be inspired by God to make new worship music. And I love to hear a wonderful new song that I've never been able to sing before, but it just touches and strikes a chord in your heart. and You're able to have uh, a wonderful experience praising God with a new song. Every generation makes new worship music, but not every song of every generation is carried on. They don't all become great songs of the faith. Those that stick around, though, for 100, 200, 300 years, especially in English worship, because we're talking from our own perspective, those are there for a reason. They've been used by God to bless people and touch their hearts for a generation. Well, as I said, this one's only, it's a, it's a fairly young hymn. It's only over 125 years old. And of course, it's the hymn at Calvary. It's one of those hymns that though it speaks a very serious subject, the death of Jesus for us on the cross, it was an upbeat hymn. I grew up way down in the South. I'm an Okie born in Oklahoma City. And in the churches of the South, they sing, in those days, there were no teams. There was no worship teams. There was just a song leader, usually a man with barrel chested and he could belt it out and we became a choir. And I remember this song as a boy and it was saying with an upbeat, bum, 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 and as a kid, that's what appeals to you, like songs with some oomph to them, at Calvary. And it was always one that left an impression on me. It was always a blessing to me. I didn't know where it came from. It was only over the last 20, 30 years that the stories behind the hymns Familiar and famous hymns became important. There are two important books in that regard as far as music history. One, and many of you may own these books or have them in your library, one was called 101 Hymn Stories. And the second, 101 More Hymn Stories. That was pretty original. I like that. But this uh, is very brief in that. It's kind of an interesting story. It's not like some of the tragic stories we've heard where, where a man's wife or his fiance drowned the day before the wedding and so forth, or his mom was dying in Ireland and he wrote a poem to her, which became a familiar hymn. Now, this is interesting in another way. I want to show you a picture of the man who wrote it when he was young. His name was William Newell. He's up in the corner there. Most of the pictures you see of him, he's a wonderful, jolly-looking older gentleman because he died in 1956. But this was when he was young. William Newell, born in the eastern United States, was a prodigy. He bordered on genius. And he became a believer in Christ at a very young age. But he exceeded. He was like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul of Tarsus, who exceeded all of his peers in the study of Scripture. This man, he not only began to be a scholar in the original languages of the Bible, he began to write commentaries on books of the Bible. And if you have Bible commentaries, you know those people know an incredible depth of knowledge about the culture and background of Scripture. William Newell began writing commentaries. He became not only a scholar, because he took his education at Princeton and later the famous Oberlin Seminary, where he graduated tops of his class, but he, a new 
emerging institution of Christian education, of course, was Moody Bible Institute in the Chicago area. And we've heard a lot about Dwight Moody, the famous evangelist. He was the Billy Graham before there was a Billy Graham, before there was television evangelism and widespread. Back, television evangelism reminds me of people asking money for air conditioning and so forth, appealing for funds. But in those days, Dwight Moody... There was no television. There wasn't even radio. They would have large public meetings, oftentimes with no no uh, artificial amplification. They would have hardwood soundboards behind the speaker to project the voice and so forth. And music became important. We heard about Moody's song leader, Ira Sankey, and how he was key in popularizing many of these early hymns that we know today that came through the Moody Crusades. Moody Bible Institute grew out of that preeminent seminary in the United States. And who did they choose to be their superintendent? He began as assistant superintendent, William Newell, when he was only 25 years old. He was an incredible prodigy. And you know, he had attended some of the Moody meetings, and he it always struck him that early on in those meetings, the music and the message, they didn't mesh. They sang some of the older hymns, but... It didn't really speak about what they were there for. These were evangelistic meetings where the good news of the gospel was being presented and a decision was being asked for. And he wanted to see more evangelistic songs that had that appeal in the message and was a testimony of coming to faith. He wasn't a hymn writer. He was a Bible scholar. And he was a teacher at seminary. But this was going around and around in his head. As he's thinking about it, the story goes, as he told it later with his friend, he was on his way to class. He had a few minutes. There was an empty classroom, and as he walked by the classroom, he stepped into it. And the few minutes before his own class that he was teaching, the only paper he had was an envelope. And he took the envelope out of his pocket, and he scribbled the words of an evangelistic testimony song on the back of the envelope. It just never changed it. The envelope remains today and the words to this hymn are unchanged. He wrote the words to the hymn at Calvary. Years I spent in vanity and pride. It just came to him, boom, boom, boom. He wrote it out. And then as he steps out of the classroom, he's running late now. Who's he run into in the hall? The music professor at Moody Bible Institute, Daniel Towns. Now this man had written hymns that you know about, like Trust and Obey. How many of us don't remember the tune to that? Daniel Towns wrote the song, the music, to Trust and Obey, We Have an Anchor That Keeps the Soul, a number of famous hymns. And he bumps into him, and he thrusts the envelope at him. And he says, Towns, see what music would fit this. And he was asking him, later he said, he was asking him if he knows a tune that he can apply to this. Towns didn't understand that. He took that and he looked at it. An hour later, after class, Newell comes back out and he finds Daniel Towns. Daniel Towns had written in one hour the music to At Calvary. (laughs) And right away it, it became a favorite at the Moody evangelistic rallies and so forth. And that way the words came first and the music fit it perfectly. And it's a testimony. It was their story. They said as he played it, sat down at the piano and played it for his friend, William Newell, says the two of them sang it together. 
little two-man choir, and they loved it. Within two years, it was being printed all over North America in hymn books. And it became popular because it was not only their story of conversion, but it's ours. It's mine. And Lord willing, it's yours too. Now as we go through it, you'll see how it takes us from being lost in our sin to being saved. Not only to being saved, being worshipers and people who want to share the good news with others. It begins with ignorance. Ignorance of Calvary. Calvary, Calvarius, the Latin word for skull, the place of the skull, Golgotha. It's the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the cross, and his love for us. Now it's printed for you in the, in the uh, worship folder each week. The first verse of At Calvary that William Newell wrote says, Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified, knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. He was in ignorance. And friends, that's where we all begin. We are not saved and we are not born into the family of God. We need to be born again as Jesus told Nicodemus that night. And whether it is by our circumstances, we're born in a nation where the gospel is not readily apparent, I'm convinced that so many of us take for granted one of the greatest blessings that you heard the good news of Jesus at a young age when your heart was open and still able to trust and believe before you became hardened by the difficulties of life. The blessings of being born in a Christian family. People often say, I don't have a testimony. I, 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 didn't, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't saved off the streets. I, it's not dramatic. I had a mom and dad and grandparents who loved Jesus and they loved me. And it was very natural for me to share that love for Jesus. I think that's a wonderful testimony. But many of us, this is the testimony we have. Vanity means meaninglessness and we are living in a world today that has lost meaning the more information increases the shorter our attention spans the more shallow we become i read letters and writings of people from 100 200 years ago even millennia ago and it seemed life was richer colors were more vibrant i think their food tasted better they just had a vocabulary that expressed their heart and their thought. They didn't get lost in meaningless television shows or YouTube videos. They sat and thought about things and conversed. They were deep. We're vain and shallow. It's not your fault. It's our culture. It's the way this world is deteriorating. And the hymn reflects that. Years I spent in vanity and pride. Carry not my Lord was crucified. Sometimes our, our ignorance is willful. We hear about it. It's shared with us. Our family loves Jesus, but just to be different, just to punish them, we reject him out of hand, even, even to cause pain to them. This isn't unusual. Jesus is used to it. In fact, one of the passages that speaks of the suffering servant that prophesies Jesus' coming tells this about us. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised 
rejected by men, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We thought nothing of him. We thought he was nothing. Well, you think it would be different as Jesus, a rabbi, Jesus, son of David, direct descendant of King David himself, Jesus, the coming Messiah, he would be celebrated as the king of the Jews. But that didn't happen. What does it tell us in John chapter 1? He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He was esteemed not. And friends, we often carry on that tradition. We think nothing of Jesus. William Newell and Daniel Towns remembered those years when Jesus meant nothing to them. They saw those as wasted years. Ignorance of Calvary. But then by the grace of God, someone was bold enough to share the good news, to share the bread of life, to extend the medicine that could heal the soul. They told them of the love shown by Jesus on Calvary. And the truth of Calvary came through. That's what the second verse talks about. That moment where the light turns on, where the light dawns. Are you still young enough to remember in your own spiritual walk when it became apparent to you that Jesus' death was not just a historic thing and the cross is more than a piece of jewelry, but that He knew you and loved you despite your sin and He died for you and the light comes on. The second verse continues at Calvary. By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I spurned till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. By God's word. We hear it through people, through human agency, but the truth of the good news is found and rooted solidly in the Word of God. We would not know God unless He revealed Himself to us. And friends, He does it authoritatively in His living Word, the Bible. The truth of Calvary. And you notice in that verse, there's that, there's that conviction of our sin. You know, we all go through that time, and I love VBS, and I love the youngest kids in VBS, because you share the good news with them and talk Jesus came and died for our sins, the young kids deny that. Not that Jesus didn't die on a cross. They deny that they have any sin in their life. <laughs> I talked to their parents, though, and I checked. Nope, they had sin all right, but they just, it didn't fizz on them yet. No, sin, no, 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 no. I never robbed a bank. I didn't do that. And we all play that game at some point. I remember as a young person saying, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as my older brother. <laughs> I'm not as bad as that kid down the street. You know, we compare ourselves with one another instead of with a holy God. But then part of that coming to understand Calvary is to understand he was paying the price for my sin. The wages of sin was death. And the precious Lamb of God, without sin, loved me enough 
to pay for my sin. As Dwight Moody once said, someone needed to die for my sin. It was Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. And there's truth in that. The truth of Calvary. Jesus says even feeling guilty for something, we don't have it in us as a broken humanity, as a fallen race. We need God's help. And that's one of the functions of His precious Holy Spirit. He promised the coming counselor in John chapter 16. Jesus says, but I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's stories of John Wesley and others and the Great Awakening and these uh, great meetings by George Whitfield, where they had special seats reserved at the front for people who were under conviction, who felt the weight of their sin and wanted to know what to do about it. To make it easy for them to respond, they had special seating just for them. They were more in tune with spirituality than we are today. We see a glimpse of that in Scripture. The Holy Spirit has just come upon the church on the day of Pentecost. The church has been born. And the Spirit is also at work in the midst as people are coming to conviction that they're sinners. Now, I love the end of the Apostle Peter's brief sermon on the day of Pentecost. He wraps it up in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the cry of a sinner's heart. I see my need. What can I do? I can't be good enough. I don't have it in me. Rules. I can't follow the rules. And they don't change my heart anyway. Brothers, what can I do? You remember the response? I said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent and be baptized. And you'll be saved. Put your faith in Jesus. The truth of Calvary came home. And experiencing new birth and new life, the Jesus we once mocked along with Pontius Pilate now becomes the Lord of our hearts. And we receive through faith the gift of salvation, the gift of Calvary. That's what the next verse looks at, the free gift of salvation. Verse 3 tells us, now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own Him as my King. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary. And oh, how different it is. The seeing of one who loved you there. The one we once mocked. Now we see in His love, it's our sin He's carrying to the cross. When He shed His blood, it was to wash away our sin. It was to take our burden. 
And we once mocked Him for that. As Jesus came to trial, they didn't have the power of execution, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel in Jesus' day. They had to go to the occupying military force. They had to go to the Romans to have Jesus put to death. What was the charge that really stuck? He says He's a king. And we have no king but Caesar. This man has to die. Overhearing this, the Roman soldiers, as they tortured Jesus, preparing Him to die on the cross, as they did that, they, they reflected that charge that He had made Himself a king. We see in John chapter 19, Then Pilate took Jesus and had Him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Behold the man. Go to Jerusalem today, the beginning of the, the Via Della Rosa, the walk from the place of judgment to the place of crucifixion. There's an old arch from an old monastery that used to stand there and it crosses the street. And it's called the Ecce Homo Arch. In Latin, behold the man. Because it's near the place where Pilate gave them the opportunity to free Jesus. And instead, they freed a fellow sinner, Barabbas. The gift of Calvary, God's great love. For Jesus, they mocked as a king. We who know Him, know Him as our King, our Lord and our Master, King of kings and Lord of lords. And today, as we celebrate and remember Jesus' love for us, we remember Calvary. It's part of what Scripture says, as often as you remember it, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So today, along with the final verse, we remember Calvary. Remember what the Lord did for us there. The fourth verse of our hymn, the key word in that is O. Oh. <laughs> When I do something wrong, as a little kid, you get caught and you say, uh-oh. Oh has a lot of meanings. It's a simple sound. It's very powerful. When William Newell wrote it, his words failed him. He had to resort to an utterance. The love of God was too great to put into words. So he just said, oh. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And it has a wonderful chorus too. The free mercy and grace that comes to us through Calvary. In just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to remember His body freely given to the cross out of His love for you. And we're going to remember his blood shed for us. Oh, I love the fact that 
One of the verses children first learn is John 3.16. It speaks so clearly of the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. For God so loved. Oh, the love. The Apostle Paul said it's important for we, the descendants of those first believers at Pentecost, to remember regularly the great love of Christ. It grounds us and brings us back to who we are, sinners in need of a Savior. Not better than others, forgiven. And now we have that gift of salvation, that good news to share with others. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that struggled in this area in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. By your actions, you preach the good news. Jesus loved you. Gave His life on the cross for your sins. Now I've given to Jesus everything. We think of our money, our time. All we can give to Jesus is our sin. And He paid for it. We are thankful of that. Let's pray, and as we pray, I will uh, ask the worship team to lead us in our theme hymn. Let's stand together and pray, and then we'll sing at Calvary. Following that, we'll share the Lord's table. Let's stand together.
the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, tells them, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here at Troshu Baptist, we practice what we call open communion. It's free for all who know Jesus as their Savior to partake. I'll ask Vern to give thanks for the bread, the reminder to us of the body of Jesus given for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for covering that span between heaven and earth. And that you hung on the cross, that your body was broken for us. Help us to do this in remembrance of you. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had broken it, he'd given given thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll call upon Marlon to give thanks for the cup, which reminds us of the shed blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder uh, that tells us about the great sacrifice you made for us, that you washed our sins away. Mm-hmm. So as we take this, may it uh, impact our hearts, uh, knowing that uh, that great sacrifice you made for us. We thank you for it. Amen. Amen.
After supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. Friends, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this day, this beautiful day that you have made. Lord, help us to rejoice and be glad in it. And Lord, as we go from this place of worship and learning of your word to our places of ministry, may we be witnesses to the good news that has had such an impact in our own lives and the boldness and courage not only to say the word, to share the good news, but Lord, to back it up with the lives we live. We thank you for this morning. We pray it all in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.